invite you now to turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. And we will be considering verses 15 through the end of the chapter in verse 21. If you ask most people living today, what is Christianity all about? You're likely to get an answer, something to the effect of, well, Christianity is about doing good. Uh, The Christian God is a loving God. We're called to love him and obey him. And these same people we would question would likely assume that Christianity is very similar to other religions. I was pleased here recently while interviewing a local high school senior uh, who was applying to my alma mater and gave him an interview in his preparation for college. And uh, during the interview, I learned from him that he had recently taken a comparative religions class, comparing Christianity with Islam and Hinduism, etc. And I asked him, what is unique about Christianity? How is it distinct from other world religions? And in his answer, he astutely observed that Christianity believes in original sin, in total depravity, and as well as in our need for Christ. Now, whether he believed this personally or not, I could not discern. But I was impressed by his answer, which I believe is better than we would find by most Americans in our culture today, uh, whether Christian or not. What is the difference between religion and the gospel? That's the topic we want to address tonight as we come towards the end of our series following Timothy Keller's The Reason for God. Our text tonight is perhaps one of the best expressions of sola fide, the cry of the Protestant Reformation, whereby we celebrate salvation by faith alone in Christ. Please follow now as I read Galatians 2, 15 through 21. Paul writes, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ, Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For though the law, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's pray. Father, we come tonight to consider the message of the gospel, the only hope for sinners. And I pray for us to have wisdom and discernment to understand the real difference between the religion of man and the true gospel of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Timothy Keller opens up this chapter of his book with 
an illustration from Robert Louis Stevenson's classic work, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. In the story, Dr. Jekyll discerns that his, the bad side of his nature is preventing the good side of his nature from becoming everything that it could be. And so Dr. Jekyll figures out how to develop a potion that he can drink that would separate out his good nature and his bad nature. And so with his evil nature set apart from his good nature, he is free to pursue and realize all of his goals. However, there's a consequence. When his evil side comes to the forefront, he is shocked to find that he is far more evil than he had ever dared dream to become. Mr. Hyde, his evil side, commits grievous evil. He even commits murder in a driven, self-centered pursuit of conquest. Mr. Hyde gratifies every desire. He justifies every one of his actions. And throughout the story, Robert Louis Stevenson seems to be establishing a moral for his readers that even the best of people hide from themselves their evil within, their egotism, self-absorption, and self-interest at the expense of others. But when Dr. Jekyll begins to see this growing problem, he makes a pledge to stop drinking the potion. He goes on to devote himself to works of charity and other good deeds to perhaps atone for the crimes committed by Mr. Hyde. But then one day, Dr. Jekyll, in reflection upon how good he has become, on how his works of charity and service has benefited many, he looks down to discover to his dismay he has become Mr. Hyde unvoluntarily, without drinking the potion. It seems that Dr. Jekyll has become Hyde, not in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. Triggered by his own pride and self-righteousness, this transformation between each of these, nation, each of these natures spins wildly out of control, And in a last-ditch, desperate effort to stop Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll takes his own life. Mr. Hyde, in this story, represents that scandalous side of our evil, fallen human nature. Dr. Jekyll, on the other side, represents the good side of our nature that is still nonetheless corrupted by pride and self-righteousness. As Christians, our calling is to apply, to apply the gospel, not only to our base evil desires, but also to that religionist drive whereby we strive to prove ourselves, to ourselves and others, how good we are without God. When the last time we considered this series, we took a look at the problem of sin. We considered how within our our bent, fallen human nature, 
We trade away God for counterfeits by which we base our very identity and our self-worth. Paul, in this passage, in verses 15 and 16, provides a biblical summary of the solution to the problem of sin. Three times in verse 16, he declares that salvation is not by works of the law. You see, in the Jewish mindset, the observance of the law of Moses was the basis of one's identity. Sabbath-keeping, a strict dietary regiment, following and keeping the Ten Commandments were the means by, way, by which the good Jew would enjoy God's righteousness. The Jews excluded Gentiles because they did not keep the law of God. And as is such the case with fallen, depraved human hearts, religious people have this awful tendency to put too much stock in their religious tradition and so look down upon outsiders with a self-righteous indignation. Whether Jews, Muslims, Hindus, or even modern secularists who in their zeal push for educational reform or environmental policies to preserve the environment, all of us are wired to live on a works-based system whereby we might feel justified in ourselves and consequently condemn others. Even Christians struggle with this urge to trust in our religious traditions rather than the gospel. About a year or so ago, I served on a panel discussion in a local Christian school. The topic of discussion was, what is the greatest problem facing the church? And the various panelists had different answers. One panelist answered that perhaps it was the tendency of modern Christians to have a kind of historical amnesia and rejection of tradition. Another panelist insisted that, no, the greatest problem facing the church was the church's failure to maintain biblical standards for ruling elders. When it came to my term, I half-jokingly said the greatest problem in the church is that it's made up of people. But then I added, the greatest problem in the church is our failure to believe the gospel. Whether it's liberals on the left wing or right-wing fundamentalists, whether it's those who lean towards moralism or those who cave in to licentiousness, we all fail to treasure Christ above the false gods of this age and every idol embedded in our fallen hearts. Well, in contrast to a works-based salvation, three times Paul declares that we are declared justified by faith alone in Christ. Our righteousness is not earned by our good behavior. Rather, it's a righteousness from Christ that we appropriate by faith in his precious blood, his sacrifice for us. You see, the solution to sin is not just a better moral system. There is no religion, no psychology, no self-help regimen that will ever benefit us eternally. Christ is the only Savior who trumps all man-made religion 
all efforts throughout human history. And Christ also is the solution to perhaps the greatest flaw of mankind, our pride. You see, it was pride that laid behind the Jews' rejection of Christ. And that rejection of Christ led to the downfall of Jerusalem, the sacking of the city, the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. The Jewish pride in being Jewish fed their antagonism towards the Gentiles. The Jewish leaders took the Mosaic law, which was intended to drive us to the mercy seat of God, and propped it up, adding additional boundaries and a litany of standards and stipulations, whereby one might arbitrarily attain an artificial peace and acceptance with God. But of course, it fails, as do all works-based religions. What we need is a true reconciliation with the living God. The pride of unbelief is what keeps people stuck in man-made religion. In their pride, people insist on paying their own way. People would rather bargain with God than to receive anything freely from his hand. It's our pride that makes it difficult to accept the message of the gospel. People will not accept what is most true and most devastating about themselves. You see, fundamental to true religion, fundamental to the gospel is embracing the truth that we are sinners and that we need a salvation that is truly from God. You see, most of all religious effort strives to cover up this very central truth. Whether it's the Jewish effort by way of law or the modern liberal attempt to rationalize sin to assuage the guilty conscience with psychology, people resist Christ and their need for a Savior. And it's this persistent quest for self-acceptance and approval from God that leads to a smug self-righteousness. Fallen man is self-protective. Like our first parents who hid in the bushes covering themselves with fig leaves, we refuse to admit the true nature of our problem. God's standards are too hard, so we invent our own. And if we can meet our own standards, it justifies an attitude of superiority towards others. We can look down upon others to feel better about ourselves. But of course, if we fail to measure up to our own standards, it leads to self-condemnation. And it's to that issue which I believe Paul addresses in verse 18 when he talks about rebuilding that which we destroyed. You see, the gospel tears down these false constructs of man-made morality and religion. And in our flesh and weakness, we keep trying to rebuild them up again. For Christmas, our oldest child received a Connects construction set that builds up this roller coaster-like contraption. He spent the better part of two days putting it together. And then on one occasion, one of his little brothers came along and toppled it, knocked over a portion of it, 
after he had worked so hard to build this beautiful machine. And he was understandably angry in response to what his little brother had done, a response I'm sure he learned from his daddy. But it illustrated to me how our anger, our reaction to disappointment reflects the pride we invest in building things up. We put a lot of effort, invest a lot of pride in building up our standards, our view of ourselves, how we want other people to view us and appreciate us. And the gospel comes along and tears it down. The gospel makes people angry. Because it says that you're not good enough. It says that your standards don't measure up and you can't even live up to them anyway. Paul here criticizes all of our efforts to continue rebuilding a works-based righteousness. Have you ever wondered why Muslim terrorists are so angry? Why do they hate us so much? Yes, perhaps there are some political and socioeconomic grievances at stake. But I believe that these Muslims know in their hearts that they fail to live up to the standards of the law that they have accepted. And rather than humble themselves before God, they blame others and attack them. Why is there so much hostility between Jewish Israel and the Muslim Hamas group in Gaza? These two fundamentally self-righteous religious communities are determined to war it out to the bitter end due to their pride and self-righteousness. Why were the Pharisees and teachers of the law so offended at Jesus? Why did they hate him so intensely? It's because by his teaching and his lifestyle, he exposed them for the sham that they were in all of their hypocrisy. They hated exposure like a cat going to the vet. And why does Paul scream out threats? Why does Saul pursue Christians to, to send them to jail? It become, it's because, as he confesses, his identity was rooted in a moralistic drive towards works righteousness that needed to be broken, that was threatened by the grace of the gospel until it was exploded by the message of Christ. As Paul professes in Philippians 3, 4 through 9, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul when he was Saul, was as religious as they come. 
Yet he was an angry, controlling, judgmental man moved towards violence. You know, there are too many Christians just like him. And it's not because they are Christian, but because they fail to believe the gospel. Proud at being good. Not living by grace, but living a kind of Nike Christianity, a just-do-it mentality, what I like to call the performance Christianity, this striving drivenness to keep up on the treadmill of God, to keep running for God, to perform, to win God's favor, to win approval, to feel better about yourself, to keep from falling off. Friend, if that is you, Know that Jesus sets you free. Jesus gives you permission to get off the treadmill and to follow him in joy and gladness. For years, I harbored anger and resentment towards the church of my upbringing. I was converted in my later high school years and by the Lord's grace, grew in my faith throughout college. And one summer, I went back to my home church, and I served as the youth intern, much like we do here. And I preached the gospel. And I was so excited about Christ and his grace and was shocked when some of the adults in the church were hostile to my message. They didn't like grace. It threatened them and everything that they held dear in their religion. I got angry. I got angry at this church for its failure to teach me the gospel in my younger years, its failure to train me up in biblical doctrine. I was angry because most of my friends from junior and senior high were apostate, had completely turned away from the faith because of religious hypocrisy. But then as the Lord worked in my own heart, I began to see my own performance Christianity. I had to grow to recognize God's sufficiency for me, for me in Christ. To realize it was only by God's grace that I was in his kingdom. And that Jesus had died not only for my sins, Jesus had died for my righteousness. I've since made peace with the church of my youth. I'm grateful for their ministry to my parents. And I pray for them even as I weep over its weak theology and its humanistic leanings. But I recognize that I, too, fail to believe the gospel as consistently as I should and reminded that religion is a poor substitute for the gospel. So what is the difference between religion and the gospel? Well, religion might embrace Jesus, call him teacher, call him a model, an example, but ultimately refuses to embrace him as savior, the very reason for which Jesus came, to be crucified. To deny Jesus as savior is to deny the cross. Jesus told his followers, take up your cross and follow me. Now the moralist hears those words and thinks, great, I'll pick up mine and off we go. But that where he attitude misses the point. 
Jesus is not much, so, not much so saying, be like me, as be identified with me. That we have a new identity in him, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live. You see, it's not about my resume, but Christ's resume. My hope and my satisfaction is not based upon my own performance, but upon what Christ accomplished in my behalf. Yes, we must be crucified with him. Remember, the only solution Dr. Jekyll had to the problem of Hyde was death. The only solution to our problem with sin is also Death, but it's not an act of self-centered suicide. Rather, we're called to die to sin when we trust in Christ. Dying to self by dying to that false trust in ourselves and our striving to earn favor with God. Once we let go and rest in Christ's grace, a radical change happens. We learn to entrust ourselves into him who loved me enough to give himself completely for me. In the final verse, Paul tells us that those who want to insist upon a righteousness by moral effort actually deny the sacrifice and cross of Christ. If we are saved by good moral law keeping, then Christ died for nothing. His very death, his crucifixion, communicate to us how severe the problem was. It's completely beyond our ability to do anything about it. You see, religion nullifies the cross. The gospel glories in the cross. For it's through the cross that we have the death of sin, giving us new life, being identified with Christ. The Christian gospel says that I am so flawed that Jesus had to be killed for me. But also, I am so loved that Jesus was glad to die for me. Let's consider the effects of the gospel. Being crucified with Christ means that I have nothing left to prove. It means I can knock that chip off of my shoulder. Being crucified with Christ means I no longer think more or less of myself. Rather, I can think of myself less. You see, the Christian's worth is not on the basis of exclusion of others, but is rooted in the Lord who was excluded for us. The grace of the gospel humbles us in a way that religion never can. It also affirms us and restores us in a, re- in a way that religion is impotent. Being crucified with Christ means I have no basis for despising non-believers. Because I recognize I am not worthy. I'm saved not by merit or pedigree, but by the free grace of Christ. The gospel of grace means that I don't have to be intimidated anymore by people who are better than me, 
who are more talented, who are more successful than me. The gospel enables us to escape oversensitivity, defensiveness, and our need to criticize other people. Religion has this tendency to make people think that they deserve the decent and happy life. And so when trials come to religious people, they can either grow resentful at God or angry with themselves for not measuring up to their religious standards. The gospel has the power to enable us to escape from that vicious spiral of bitterness and despair when life goes wrong. When life does not work the way I imagined it. Consider Jesus, the most morally upright person in history, who suffered grievously and tragically in the eyes of the world. Friend, if you are identified with him, you can endure the deepest of trials, even with joy. You know, perhaps there is something more scary than suffering, and that's this notion of free grace. Grace is threatening because it means that nothing, there is nothing that God cannot ask of you, even suffering. Consider, if you are saved by good works, then there must be some limit on what God can ask of you. It'd be like a taxpayer having rights. We can demand, we can negotiate if our salvation is based upon our own righteousness. But if I am saved by grace, that means that I am a slave. I have no rights. I am completely God's. He has every right to me. And that's scary. For a lot of people whose quest is control, who demand their rights, that's a scary and dangerous message. But once we grasp the gospel, or perhaps once it gets a hold of us, we realize that we can joyfully and gratefully belong to Jesus, who provided everything for me at infinite cost to himself. You see, service to Christ is not slavery. It's actually a lot more like a love relationship. When you fall in love with somebody, you're not moved by a coercion obligation or fear to serve them, it happens naturally because it's your delight to serve that person. That is what the gospel is about between a Christian and God. Timothy Keller closes out his chapter with yet another illustration from a classic literary work, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. The main character is the bitter ex-convict Valjean. Valjean had stolen silver from a bishop who had already shown him kindness. He is caught, arrested, and taken and placed in the bishop's home under arrest. But then in a radical move of unexpected grace, the bishop allows him to keep the silver and releases him. Victor Hugo spells out how threatening this grace was to Valjean. He writes, 
he was indistinctly conscious that the pardon of this priest was the greatest assault and the most formidable attack which had moved him, that if he yielded, he should be obliged to renounce that hatred with which the actions of other men had filled his soul through so many years, and which pleased him, that this time it was necessary to conquer or to be conquered, and that a struggle had begun between his viciousness and the goodness of that man. Valjean chooses grace. He gives up his self-pity, his bitterness, and resolves to live a life of graciousness towards other people. But then there's the other main character of the story, the police officer, Daver, who has built his life on the understanding of rewards and punishments. He relentlessly pursue, relentlessly and self-righteously pursues Valjean, even to the extent of wrecking his own life. But then at last, Val, Javert falls into Valjean's hands. Rather than kill him, Valjean lets him go. Javert realizes that an appropriate response to this gesture would require him to change his entire worldview. Javert throws himself into the Seine River. For religionists like Javert and Dr. Jekyll, suicide is the logical conclusion to the impossible mission of self-made perfection. Thanks be to God, there is a better way. While religion enslaves the soul, the gospel liberates it. While religion hurts relationships, the gospel heals relationships. Jesus said that he had come to set us free. And the paradox of that message is that this liberating free grace demands of us to give up our control. You see, grace frees us from the slavery of self lurking amongst the graveyard of morality and religion. Friend, I urge you tonight to let go of religion and to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, to no longer live in the flesh but die, to be crucified with Christ and to say with Paul, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for the hope and the joy and the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have sent your Son to wipe out man-made religion, to set us free, to live for you, to live in relationship with you by faith in Christ. I pray that each one here would have that joy and that freedom as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, that we might enjoy true communion with the living God, have been reconciled through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.